Welcome to the Life Plus God podcast. My name is Alyssa Robinson. I'm your host. And today I am with Reverend Daniel Humbert, the senior pastor here at Treach Memorial United Methodist Church. Welcome back, Daniel. Hey, hey, good to be with you. It's been a while since we heard from you. So yeah. I'm really excited. I've been in exile or something. I know, I don't know. to have you back. Uh, <laughs> so we are, as a church, going into this worship series uh, called Weird. And this is actually our second time doing this, where... Uh, we're pulling out weird stories from the Bible. So we've done a few podcast episodes in the past calling out specific stories. But this summer, what we've decided to do is explore some of the weird themes uh, in the Bi- Bible. And there are so, weird themes. Yeah. And so, uh, Daniel, today our big question is, why were there so many resurrections in Bible times? <laughs> now, it, it might sound a little sacrilegious to call a resurrection weird, but we're using the word weird to mean out of the ordinary and unusual. And I don't know if there's a single person who would say a resurrection isn't out of the ordinary. Right. Yeah. Very distinct, right? Very unique. However, we don't hear a lot about resurrections happening today, and yet people might be surprised that Jesus wasn't the only resurrection that happened uh, in Scripture. I think a lot of us are familiar with the story of Lazarus, but there's even more than that. And so today we're going to explore some of these resurrections. What can we learn from them? What does it mean for us today? Um, And even how does it expand beyond the Christian tradition? Uh, Because resurrection is not unique to us, I've learned as I'm researching this topic. Yeah, that's pretty weird, isn't it? Yeah. All right. So so first, let's start with just the spiritual definition of resurrection. Um, would you say it's different from the dictionary definition? Do we approach resurrection differently as Christ followers? Yeah, I think uh, it's important for us to understand that, because I think, uh, as you rightfully point out, when you talk about resurrection or look it up in the dictionary, it is just going to give you a simple concept of, hey, this is Somebody who's been raised from the dead or raised to new life would be some real common reference points. And while that's certainly not inaccurate, that's not the totality of what we understand. We, we, you know, the Christian faith, just like other traditions, have developed a whole theology around this. And so I'm going to read a portion of Scripture from uh, Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth that really kind of established our understanding, the theological understanding of resurrection for the Christian church. I'm going to read a couple of passages that kind of help us to better understand it. And it's based on Jesus's resurrection, right? That, that kind of makes it a little different. So Paul says this uh, in part, beginning in verse 20 of chapter 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So that begins to set up one concept of this is that Jesus's resurrection must be somehow different. That's why he's now calling it the first fruits, right? And the, so there's something distinctive about Jesus's resurrection. He'll go on to say this uh, further down, uh, but some uh, will ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And he says this, so it is with the resurrection of the dead that it, uh, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, 
Uh, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. And then he goes finally on to say, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's quite long, uh, for this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying is sure, and he goes on to express that uh, this resurrection has overcome uh, death, mm -hmm. right? And so for us, spiritual resurrection is not just about being brought back to life, like reviving somebody or recitation, right? Re uh, resurrection becomes an everlasting uh, overcoming of death. That's what this resurrection does. That's why Jesus' is, is different than the others that we're going to talk about. Well, well, let's talk about some of those other ones, because I have more questions about, you know, the big differences between Jesus' resurrections and some of the other ones. But I think that, um, first, I want to know, how many different stories of resurrection are there in the Bible? Well, so that question is not easily answered, because it, it depends on how you define it. But there's, there's probably at least 10 uh, a few from the Old Testament and several from the New Testament, uh, one of which you just mentioned, Lazarus. But there's an interesting collection of them in the books of Kings, First and Second Kings, where usually children are brought back to life uh, of widows, in fact, most of the time. It's an interesting take. But one could argue, for instance, that the, the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel, chapter 37, is, is resurrection, because it, it sort of references uh, the resurrection, if you will, of the Israelite people. That's what it's referencing. The book of Daniel in chapter 12 talks about uh, resurrection, uh, that some will be raised to eternal life. And so there's this, there's this concept in the, in the Hebrew tradition then, even before Jesus, that there's a concept of resurrection or eternal life in the Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. Even in Lazarus's story in John chapter 11, uh, you know, before Jesus raises Lazarus, he's having a conversation with, with Martha and and uh, he says, do you not believe that he'll be raised? And she says, yes, I, I believe he'll be raised on the last day. Well, that's a Jewish woman speaking her Jewish faith about resurrection even before Jesus is raised from the dead. So uh, it just depends on how you render some of the stories. Likewise, when you get to Revelation, there's some references to um, what I would call sort of global resurrection, right? Just not, not a, a, an individual, but groups of people. So different people will render that differently. Well, and this is where I start to get a little confused because I know the Bible is not one story. It's a collection of stories. And so different texts were written with different uh, styles of language and um, different, like some is poetry, some is historical, some is legal, yeah. you know, all right. of this. So where can we tell the difference between stories that are talking about literal <laughs> resurrection and then the metaphoricals or spiritual resurrection? Because there are stories of people literally being brought back from the dead. Yeah, are, yeah. We, are we to take those literally and say that actually happened, or is it trying to teach us something using metaphor. Yeah, well, I, I, so the ones from the Old Testament that I just referenced, the, the, the one, there's one in 1 Kings and two in 2 Kings. Those, those books are literally sort of referred to as historical books. And so while they're not historical textbooks, 
we, we would usually look at them and say, okay, well, those events must have happened or they must have been real in history, right? So uh, they appear to be uh, real events. Likewise, the, the, the ones that are in uh, the Gospels, like Lazarus or Jairus' daughter, uh, those appear to be events that actually took place, whereas uh, the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel or the reference in Daniel or certainly the references in um, the book of Revelation. Uh, you know, we won't get off too far on Revelation, but I mean, so Revelation can be rendered in a lot of different ways, but United Methodist Christians uh, render Revelation as metaphorical, that it's really to, to represent things and represent the hope that God has for us. So when there are discussions in Revelations, a United Methodist follower of Christ would say, well, that's metaphorical. That That's helping us to point to something larger than the event. So it, it depends on the story, depends okay. on the account. So for the literal ones that were actually events, who who is it in each of these stories that's actually performing the resurrection? Or, or do we say it's all God through a vessel of human? Yeah, well, I mean... Quite literally, the latter part of that is the real answer. Certainly yeah. in the Old Testament, it wouldn't be Jesus because he's yeah. not born yet, right? Well, it's mostly prophets, right, who are performing resurrections? Yeah, yeah it's Elisha, Elisha seems to be the one in, in the uh, first Kings and second Kings. Um, when we get to the New Testament, in the Gospels, it's Jesus who's raising people. The book of Acts has a couple of other accounts, and that's usually either uh, Paul or, or Peter who are helping to, to bring somebody back to life. Yeah. And then the one that always confuses me is um, on the day of Jesus's death, it talks about mm. that people just walked yeah. out of their grave. So it wasn't right. necessarily because like some of these things were like, OK, Elisha performed from resurrections. Jesus performs the resurrections. We have the people in place who are like representatives of God or calling on the spirit of God yeah. into these people in some way. But then on the day of Jesus's death, the scripture tells us and potentially hundreds of bodies got up and walked out of their graves. Yeah, yeah. What's that? about? Well, because <laughs> that's weird, that's right? A, yeah, it is weird. And it's a great question that I don't really have an answer for. Uh, I can tell you some thoughts that, you know, you can take or leave. But Matthew, uh, just a couple broad strokes with regard to Matthew. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. So he's trying to fulfill Hebrew theology and Hebrew scripture. And so um, he's the one, for instance, that he's the only one who in the uh, passion narrative talks about a, a, an earthquake. In fact, too, there's an earthquake kind of uh, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, and then there's an earthquake right after the appearance of Jesus in the, uh, what we would call the resurrection. So I, I can only imagine that a part of what Matthew is trying to say here when he talks about these people being raised from the dead in Matthew 27, that uh, he's kind of trying to fulfill the, the theological concept that we just referenced from John as well in Lazarus' resurrection, that in the last days that people will be raised. Well, the thought would have been, by golly, these must be last days because this guy's being raised, Jesus is being raised, and, and he's the Messiah. And therefore, we're going we're gonna to identify that this must be the fulfillment of that. That's all I can figure because um, it is the only point in Scripture where that's referenced, literally. Mm -hmm. None of the other Gospels no reference other, oh, it. None of the other Gospels reference it. Uh, Matthew has in the passion narrative of Jesus the most distinctive components of any of the other Gospels, and this is one of them. Well, as I was preparing for this and, and reading through a few scriptures, one of the things that I was thinking about um, 
because I've experienced grief and death in multiple ways, and so many people surrounding us have, this thought that people die every day Mm. and we are all just grieving and mourning loss. And most, a lot of us would give anything for our loved one to be resurrected. Um, Why these people in scripture, the people who were resurrected, do we have any inclination of why they were chosen to be the person brought back from the dead? Yeah. Well, so I'm going to, I'm going to, step out and sort of challenge that I don't believe these are resurrections because of what I read from 1 Corinthians 15. These are people being revived, being brought back to life, and therefore uh, one can clearly call it a resurrection, but it's different from Jesus's. And so in, in, the, in the Old Testament, I'm just going to say, well, it's a demonstration that God has power beyond our abilities, right? Uh, some kid, two, two different kids are raised. Some guy <laughs> even touches the bones of Elisha's dead body, and he's brought back to life. No human has any interaction. He just touches, or the body touches these bones, and he comes back to life. So, I mean, I don't know that it gets any more weird than that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with regard to the New Testament and the Gospels, when people are healed and therefore brought back to life, even Lazarus itself, this in Lazarus's case, for instance, it's a way to demonstrate that Jesus, because it's the point at which Jesus gives his one of his I am statements, I am life and I am the resurrection. But you, you have no better demonstration than a guy coming back to life, right? So that's why that's happening in John's Gospel is it's, it's proof positive that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He, he can do that. In the others, it's just a way to acknowledge Jesus has power to give life, and so he's going to bring back Jairus' daughter or whoever. Mm. So you've mentioned a few times that Jesus' resurrection was unique. What were some of the things that made it different? Because I understand you saying, you know, hey, we can call them resurrections, but what they really were were revived reviving a body, which to me sounds more medical of like, oh, they were able to, it's almost like a doctor being able to restart someone's heart, uh, except they were calling on God to do that. But what I guess what's the difference between that and Jesus? Well, so the biggest difference, and it, it's, it's almost so obvious that it, we tend to overlook it, is uh, every one of those people who were in Kings, those kids, and, and the, the kids in New Testament, and uh, Lazarus, every last one of them died again after they were raised from the dead. Mm. They died a human death after that. Jesus didn't. He, 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 his resurrection and what is referenced as the first fruits acknowledges he's the first one who never dies again, and therefore his resurrection is clearly different. And so his resurrection becomes the standard bearer for what we as followers of Christ believe is, by golly, our faith now says not only can there be life after this life, but Jesus becomes the standard bearer for that because Lazarus died a human death after he was revived, and so did Jairus' daughter, and so did the others, right? So that's the, that's the big distinction. And, so, and that's why it becomes a kind of a spiritual component in what Paul means when he talks about it later in 1 Corinthians 15 is when he uses this language of the perishable body must put on imperishability and the mortal body must put on immortality. That's what we're now talking about. We're now talking about a different understanding of what our body, what our souls, what our presence can do. Mm-hmm. And some of the examples of that are when Jesus appears in the, uh, in the Gospels. Um, uh, he doesn't appear in Mark's. So in, in Matthew, when he appears, he, 
he appears to a group of people, and he's different. They, they can tell that he's different physically. In Luke's gospel, he's walking along the road in Luke 24, and, and people are talking to him, but they don't realize who he is. They don't recognize him. Then they sit down and have a meal with him, and they finally go, oh, I see in this breaking of the bread, it says, I now realize who you are. In John's gospel, there's a whole bunch, right, of uh, he walks through walls, he he uh, uh, he, they, he shows his side to, to the people. He comes back another day and sh- does the same thing to, to uh, uh, Thomas. He's different. He, he, he appears to be physical, mm-hmm. but he has spiritual capacities that are different and unique. And so that's why his is different. And so people previously who had been revived, they were just in their normal human physical form. Right. Um, and we're saying... Jesus was like this weird combo of spiritual form and human, but human enough that people saw him as human. And and talked to him and apparently ate with him. And all the, so in other words, a lot of physical, normal human things were being done, but his capacity was somehow different. Again, in John's gospel, you might remember that uh, before he comes back to show himself to the disciples, he and Mary are standing in the garden and she tries to touch him. And he says, don't, don't touch me. I have not gone back to the Father yet. So that's yet another way to say he's different. He looks physical. He looks human. And I don't suppose he, I mean, I I suppose he is, but he's also spiritual. And of course, that's a part of Jesus's nature, right? That's among other things. That's what makes Jesus different is he's both human and divine. He's both to our knowledge, to our understanding. He's really the only person for whom that's ever been true, that he's fully divine and fully human. And we, we, we have a hard time, you know, wrapping our heads around that. Yeah. So one of my, the, the things that just really starts rattling around in my brain is that to say that there are at a minimum 10 different stories of resurrection in scripture or revival, whatever word you want to use, um, it seems odd to me that it didn't continue or did it? Are we just not documenting it in the same way that it was documented? Like, is there any resurrection happening today? (laughs) Well, I maintain every person who dies in faith is resurrected, right? I mean, that's a part of our faith. The other component of of our doctrinal standard or theological understanding of resurrection is that it is a bodily resurrection. And while I get that we don't really understand what that means— what we believe that it means is that our bodies are physically raised, that somehow we become both um, uh, um, sort of put together differently and have a, an ongoing relationship with God after we die. And, mm-hmm. and obviously, for those of us who've never died yet, we, we don't understand what that looks like, feels like, is like, right? I mean, we don't get it. I know I don't. Um, but I believe that it's true. And so a part of what takes shape is we believe that there's this physical uh, resurrection, where and how and why, I don't, I don't know, but, but that's what takes shape. And so a part of what brings us hope uh, as those who remain still in this life and in this world is our loved ones who've died, a, a part of our belief is somehow they are still available to us. Somehow they are still available to a relationship with God. And that's the hopeful part of that, right? Instead of simply a body that is um, uh, uh, being, you know, uh, what I've just lost the word, you know, deteriorating in the ground or ashes that have been burned, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a container of some kind, 
that is a physical body, or that is the remnants of the physical body, but they're not there anymore, right? They're not a part of that. That's just um, the physical remains. There's something different about them, and that's, again, this immortality and this imperishability. Mm. So, so would you liken revivals that we experience in a medical setting today to what was happening in the Old Testament stories back then? Yeah, I, I would just call those miracles or healings. Yeah. You know, I, I believe in miracles and I believe in healings. And I think we are so technologically advanced that we often just don't consider them that anymore. We consider them, you know, I mean, we have said a medical miracle or we talk about the technology that provides for healing, and then we just sort of negate the healing part. Yeah, It's a healing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, well, and I guess there are still stories from doctors that are the unexplained of like, sure. yeah, I yeah. don't know things that like, hey, we saw the cancer. We, you know, didn't start treatment. And next time we checked for it, it was gone. Right. You know, things right. like that. Right. Or uh, someone was not breathing and had no brain activity for three minutes. And yep. then they just suddenly came back. Yeah. yeah, That's very different than someone being declared dead for three or four days, though, like it Lazarus. Is. It is. Um, so I that's where I struggle of like, okay, did these things actually happen? Or is it a lore or a legend to point to a greater truth, but we don't actually have to believe Lazarus was dead in a tomb for three days. Yeah. I, I, I simply say to that, uh, each one of us is going to render that differently. Do I need to believe that Lazarus was dead for literally 72 hours and then was revived in the 73rd or 75th or what? I don't. But for that story to have its impact... Part of that has to do with um, uh, culture of the day. Uh, in a, in a non-medical, non-scientific culture, the way we know somebody's actually literally dead is they don't move for three days, mm -hmm. and an actual stench starts happening. I mean, this is the technology and the, and the science that they're living with, right? So when I reveal that story that I happen to believe is a literal story, I believe there's a guy named Lazarus, I believe he had two sisters, right, and, and he was a friend of Jesus, and, and he died. Um, in a non-scientific world, the only way they would believe and recognize that he was actually dead was for three days, that body did nothing, right? No breath, no movement, no nothing, no ticks, no nothing. And that's how they're going to describe it. Because in the day, that's how you knew, and that's how, that's how you then said, okay, they're now dead. It's mm -hmm. been three days. Nothing's happened. We can now fully believe that they're gone. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So with spiritual resurrection. So this is something that I know we can never fully understand, but I'm interested to hear your perspective because you and I were both raised in the faith. Mm. So for the spiritual resurrection, um, sometimes I'm envious of, uh, I'll put in air quotes, born again, Christians who like they didn't grow up in the faith and then they come to it later in life and they can see the before and after you know, yeah. I don't really have that before and after mm. belief because it was yeah. always a part of my upbringing. And even though like I have strayed and I doubt and I, you know, yeah. push yeah. the limits yeah. and all of these things, there's always like, I've never questioned God's presence. Yeah. Just how is that God's presence? Yeah. You know, yeah. 
have you had an experience of spiritual resurrection as somebody who was raised in the faith? Because I don't know if I've experienced that. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll explain this in two ways. One is deeply personal, and the other is uh, certainly more generic. But And I'll start with the, the, the latter. So generically, as a pastor, I, I get to witness it on a lot of levels in different folks. And the most common way, I, I lean into the recovery uh, uh, community. When I find people who have been uh, captivated and literally imprisoned by addiction, whatever that is, whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, food, shopping, whatever, um, I, I, I witness in their life a literal death, right? They, they uh, Well, physical, spiritual, uh, everything, right? Emotional. They, they have been captivated by the, that addiction. Uh, when they overcome that, when they uh, finally find a way to say, you know, this is a part of who I am, but I'm going to live each day not in that, and I'm going to conquer that every single day from this point forward, that is a resurrection. I mean, you literally witness that in how they live their life and how they uh, uh, interact with other people. You talk to anybody who's in the recovery community, and they they have been successful. They they will use that language. They I mean sometimes even when they're not a spiritual person, they will use that language, and and so it's real. Uh, for me, uh, the most one of the most uh, um, uh, captivating, if you will, resurrections for me, and this is the point at which I think I don't know that you literally said this, but you know, so now we've gone from. Um, the sort of real resurrection of the body, right, to this spiritual sense of how can I become new and how can I conquer sin and death? Because that's the language that resurrection is around is uh, uh, this resurrection has helped us to overcome sin and death. So I won't give you all the details, but in a previous church long, long ago, uh, there were some real difficult times in terms of uh, dealing with, uh, quite literally, it's where I changed my theology about evil incarnate. And I saw in certain individuals by their behavior and their actions and certainly their words that they were, they were evil. <laughs> and uh, they literally tried to get me um, uh, defrocked from the ministry. They uh, literally tried to get people to leave the church. They um, believed that what I was professing theologically was wrong and certainly evil. That, that, that would have been their words. I had to go through what I affectionately refer to as an inquisition, literally in front of the entire church. I had to sit down entire, in front of the entire church and spout my theology, question after question after question. It was a deeply troubling time. I, I questioned my faith. I questioned my calling. Uh, I questioned uh, you know, whether I should serve in ministry. And uh, I was dead in many ways, spiritually and emotionally. Uh, uh, it was a hard time. Uh, the district superintendent came in to intervene. Um, I was ready to leave ministry. And then uh, just a series of things began to happen. Some of the congregation began to realize, holy crud, these are evil people, and what they're doing is not right. And so they began to come to my defense. And then um, sort of my prayer life began to change in terms of how and what I was praying for and, and uh, how I was sort of relating to God. And eventually, those people who were what I believe were evil, they just kind of left because they, uh, not only did I call them out, but other people called them out. And, and that whole um, sort of group think sort of just walked away from the church. We lost about 20% of the membership of the church that year, and it was devastating. 
But uh, literally, over again the next year, between some of the things I just described and people beginning to come back, um, we gained literally within a 12-month period uh, more than 30% new people coming to the life of the church. I remember one day, uh, this goes way back, this will give a, a, a bit of an, an insight. Uh, most uh, Sundays, the offering uh, was in and around $2,000. That would have been a weekly, t- this tells you how long ago it was and how small the church was. One day, uh, about six months after these folks left, um, the counters who were counting the money came to me and said, are you aware of it? And they, they literally handed me a white envelope. It was just a number 10 envelope, no name, no markings, no nothing. Uh, and it had 10 $100 bills in it, no name, no identification. Uh, and I thought to myself, man, I chose to interpret that as a, a sign from God that somehow we were doing the right thing, that somehow we were on the right track. And so for me, that became a resurrection. It, it became a resurrection uh, spiritually for me in terms of my understanding of how God wanted and needed to use me. It became a resurrection for that church in terms of new growth and reaching new people. It became a resurrection just generally for us together as we began to realize um, we could be the church in a new and different way. And it, within a year after that, we bought land to relocate the church uh, that church be, uh, has, in those, in now the last twenty plus years, has more than quadrupled in size because people chose to do something new and different. Hmm. To me, well, that was a resurrection. And that is, it's as painful as it is. There had to be death for that right. resurrection right. to happen no, that's exactly because the right. only way. So it could have been that those antagonists within the church were the exact people who were holding the church back. That's exactly right. And they right. had to leave. Yep. They had to leave and take the people with them right. for y'all to be able to move forward in hope in any capacity at all. That's exactly right. And a part of what that, and so that was early on in ministry. In fact, it was the first church I served as a senior pastor. So it's a long time ago. But I'm so grateful in hindsight because it taught me many lessons, some of which is, even though you can read this in the scripture and know it intellectually, there has to be death, mm-hmm. and there has to be a purging in order for there to be new life. In order for resurrection to take shape, there has to be a death. And, of course, what that means is there's a scary part, right? Yeah. By the way, I want to record a follow-up episode with you on evil incarnate <laughs> because that <laughs> I, is a me. whole nother, uh, you know, Pandora's sure. box for us to open sure. up. I think yeah. that's a really interesting yeah. topic. Uh, so... Is this resurrection, so we've been talking about resurrection through the lens of Christianity, through our theological understanding of what it means for us physically, emotionally, spiritually. Does resurrection extend beyond the Christian faith, and in what ways? Well, so we already discussed the fact that um, certain Hebrews believed in resurrection. Uh, Pharisees believed in resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. There was a conversation we won't go into, but Jesus has one with Sadducees who are trying to trip him up, and it's all around the resurrection, and they don't believe in it, right? So part of what that says is we know that the Hebrew tradition, the, the Jewish faith, clearly understands it. Uh, I'm not uh, you know, overly familiar with the Islamic faith, but they have a sense of resurrection as well, and they have a sense of uh, judgment that, that, you know, certain people will be raised and certain won't. won't. And so is it something unique to Christianity? It's not. Mm-hmm. 
what we believe is that Jesus offers us a powerful example of that that helps us to understand hope and new life, and we find that in Christ. That's what makes ours distinct. What are, what are your thoughts on reincarnation as a form of resurrection? Because that's in the, um, I believe, the Buddhist faith and the Hindu faith. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if it's in, I guess it is in the Buddhist faith too, yeah. It's certainly in Hindu. Um, well, I don't believe in reincarnation as they state it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a part of, so the primary difference, as I understand it, for us is for resurrection is uh, being raised to new life forever. and and you're not going to be represented or somehow come into existence in a new form. And that's what I understand uh, reincarnation to be. Um, and so that would be my only distinction. To me, reincarnation, and again, I'm very ignorant on this, so please just know this is my own my understanding, uh, also uh, carries with it a sense of castness that I certainly wouldn't uh, adhere to. Mm. And so, uh, you know, certainly a part of that is, golly, each time you're reincarnated, you're going to be better off and you're going to be better. Or worse off, depending well, on how you true, behaved. <laughs> true, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it, that castness as well is what... Uh, is one other reason I can't adhere to something like that. So So the fact that there is the presence of resurrection in some form, because I'm, I'm not ready to say reincarnation isn't real. I'm just saying I have no idea. Right, sure. <laughs> like I yeah, have no yeah. idea what, because like you, you mentioned at the beginning in Paul's letter, the description of what resurrection means for us, mm. it's confusing. And there's no way for us to understand it until we actually experience it. But I do think it's interesting that almost every major world religion has some form of resurrection in their history or in their doctrine. What do you think that means? (laughs) Well, I think it's, um, I think it points to the human desire deep within every last human being, no matter what their faith or non-faith is, and that is we need hope. And we all yearn for that. We hope that something is bigger and better than this life. We hope that we will be able to experience something that's better than whatever we're experiencing now. Even if now's pretty good, right? Even if I kind of enjoy life and, and all things are, you know, considered pretty good, um, I still need this hope that uh, there's something on the other side. Mm-hmm. And not just for me, but for the people I love right. and right. for the world. Like we want that healing and that resurrection for all of humanity. Right. I, I agree with that. And I think, you're, uh, I think you're very much on target that it's not just for us, that mm-hmm. we need it for those that we love and ultimately for all of humanity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you explain... Um, the belief that we will all be resurrected, <clears throat> excuse me, that we will all be resurrected upon judgment day. Cause it sounded like Paul might've been talking about that a little bit. And like the first fruits thing that, that he was mentioning. Um, I'm just wondering where this idea comes from. And if that's part of our United Methodist understanding of resurrection or where this, this judgment day thing comes into play. Well, so they are two different things, right? Judgment and, and resurrection. Yeah. They, they have relationship to each other. But So uh, judgment is actually a good thing. Most people think of it as a bad thing. 
uh, I would uh, encourage and invite folks to read Matthew chapter 25. All of chapter 25 in Matthew's gospel is essentially about judgment. There's the parable of the talents, which which, which many people are familiar with about different abilities, right, and uh, talents, if you will. But it's about how one uses that for God's sake, and that's ultimately kind of what we're going to be judged by. And then you get at the very end of chapter 25, and it's the separation of the sheep from the goats, and and uh, that identifies that we will be judged by how we live love in very tangible ways. How do we feed the hungry and clothe the naked and bring drink to the thirsty, right? that That's what that particular—I uh, call it a parable, but it's not formally a parable. Um. So judgment is not so much about, hey, are you a good person or a bad person? Are you going to make it in or not make it in? But rather, were you faithful to the teachings of Jesus, in in our case, uh, for Christianity? Um, And so the good part of that is, man, we got all kinds of time, at least most of us, to kind of figure that out and make sure that we do that. And then, by golly, somebody's going to say, hey, um, how'd you do it all this? Mm -hmm. Right. Do you think that trying counts? <laughs> because yes. Sometimes yes. I get it wrong, but I really try. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so that's the first thing, right? That's sort of judgment. Judgment is a way to say, hey, uh, did you do all right at being faithful to the teachings of Jesus, which are about mercy and you know grace and justice? Uh, so the resurrection thing is a little more complicated. So um, I already mentioned a couple of these examples. So uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel uh, in the Old Testament, mentions some people being raised and sort of going on to either eternal life or, or not so good stuff. I also referenced uh, Lazarus's story where Martha says, yeah, I think he'll be raised in the last day, right? So it's already a Jewish concept. There's this concept that some last day, whatever it is, for them it was when the Messiah returns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that becomes the distinction for the Jewish faith is they're still looking for the Messiah, so they've not seen the last day. For Christians, the last day becomes when Jesus comes back, because we believe his first, you know, his first coming was what the Jews were looking for. Our, one of our distinctions is uh, we believe the Messiah did show up. Well, we're waiting for him to come back, and we're waiting for him when he comes back to say, hey, you got it right, or by golly, you didn't get it right, and let's, let's work on this. Uh, so there are different theological beliefs about what that looks like, how that happens. We, we, that's a whole other podcast. But the basic premise uh, for some, not United Methodist, but for some, is that um, uh, at that last day, whenever that happens, everybody's going to be raised, what, whatever that means for them. But the basic premise is, and, and you're right, Paul kind of references it there in 1 Corinthians 15, um, that everybody's going to be raised. And um, that sounds like a great thing. In fact, it sounds really good. Um, but it also, and, and I'm sorry, the reference to in Matthew 27 may be the same thing, right? When uh, the graves opened up, and I, I just can't even imagine what that would have looked like if it was real, right? Just like, mm-hmm. holy crud, there's dead people walking around everywhere. Probably, you know, it's what all the movies are about. Um, I, I just don't, I, I struggle with whether that's, a needful thing, whether that's a real thing, whether that's going to happen. I don't know. Yeah, it it's it's difficult for me because I so I I talk about my partner often on this uh podcast and he's Indian Orthodox and and one of his uh beliefs and I'm probably going to butcher this. I'm sorry, Jacob, if I get it wrong. <laughs> but one of the the beliefs is that when you die uh 
nobody's going to heaven until Jesus returns. Mm. So like your loved ones are beyond the veil, but they are not reunited with Christ until he returns. that returning day. And so yeah. to me, that feels like the story of resurrection does not happen mm. until Christ returns. But to me, it's hard to find the hope and comfort in that because what I want to believe is as soon as my grandmother died, she was reunited with Christ in right. that moment. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but somehow he still finds comfort in knowing that his loved ones are right beyond the veil. Like they're still with us. Yeah. And so for him, it's like, no, they're still present with me because they're just beyond the veil and we can't see them, but they're, I feel the presence and maybe like if they're reunited with Christ, they're not here anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, it's, it's so mind that, boggling. Yeah. So isn't that interesting that a fellow uh, believer in Christ, uh, from a different you know path has a, you know, completely different thought pattern on all that. And yeah. I think that's, that's, I don't know if that's what makes this difficult, but it's what, it, it, it's what makes it interesting for sure. Yeah. And it's what allows us to have, I hope, um, good, gracious conversation around it. Yeah. I mean, it's just people sitting around trying to define mysteries. Uh, right. So right. like what, there's only so much circular conversation you can have before it ends with, I have no idea. <laughs> like, how am I going to know until I'm dead? That's right. You know, um, how do you think, you know, speaking of sitting in the, the mystery and the miracles, how can we better contemplate the miracle of resurrection rather than just accepting it as fact and moving on? Because I think sometimes in the Christian faith, we're, it's such a regular part. Reg, resurrection is such a regular part of our conversation that we forget, no, this is an unusual and weird thing. Yeah. And let's sit in it and really like contemplate what that means. Yeah. Well, so for me, that's on two levels. One is the one in which we've already talked about, the spiritual sense of that, that we can have in our everyday world. Recognize that you can find new life in lots of different ways, in your professional life, in your personal relationships, and, and know that you know, there's, a, a, there's a, a high and low in all that. In order for that resurrection to happen in that relationship or in that workspace or whatever, there's got to be some form of a death, right? Something has to sort of go away. But that, that can happen at any point. So part of it's just recognizing that. The other is is to have this sense in which um, we realize we have all kinds of, well, I don't, I guess this won't be accurate, um, that we have the possibility of um, working towards completing Jesus's teachings by bringing God's kingdom into the world. Jesus brought it with him, and we're here to help fulfill that. I happen to believe, not every United Methodist Christian believes this, but I happen to believe that Jesus will return when we, as his followers, help build his kingdom on earth, and he'll come to sort of reign over it, if you will. Um, in other words, we are responsible for making that happen. I happen to believe that's a part of the resurrection and, etern and eternity that he talked about. So... For me, the way we have this conversation or continue this journey is to be about his kingdom work and to do the things he's called us to do. And that will bring resurrection to other people uh, as well as help us to have the hope of the physical resurrection that we're claiming. Yeah. 
on a micro level that feels hopeful on a macro level, it makes me kind of sad because yeah. I see how badly we've messed it up right? I and agree. how badly we've gotten it wrong. And it almost feels like to me, no, Christ has to come back to put us back on the yeah. right path. Yeah. But yeah. what you're saying is Christ won't come back until we put ourselves that that's my belief. Yeah. Uh, again, not every Christian believes that. I just I feel like if all we're going to do is wait for him to return, the problem becomes I don't need to do anything but wait. Mm. And therefore the world literally will go to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. The where, world begins to deteriorate around us and so I feel like the the takeaway is we don't have to wait for resurrection. Right. Resurrection is happening all around us, as you mentioned, in yes. our relationships and our work and our, you know, all sorts of ways. And we can celebrate that and bring that about for other people. Yes. And for me, that's very hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes sense. Um, and to just call people to stop sitting and waiting mm-hmm. for Christ to come back because that's not the point. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, thank you for having this weird yeah. conversation with me about resurrection. And uh, I'll have to call you back for that incarnate <laughs> evil conversation. Maybe I'm going to start some other prepping day. for that right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. Thank you. The Life Plus God podcast is hosted, written, and produced by me, Alyssa Robinson, and sponsored by Treach Memorial United Methodist Church in Flower Mound, Texas. If you live in the Flower Mound area, I invite you to stop by and see if Treach could be your new church family. You can learn more about all of our programs and events at tmumc.org, and I hope to catch you next week for our next episode of the Life Plus God podcast.